Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 66 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Gareth Williams, a professor of classics at Columbia University. His research interests include Latin elegiac poetry, imperial Latin poetry, Senecan philosophical prose, and Renaissance humanism. He has contributed to various projects and edited volumes in the area of Roman philosophy, and his most recent research has focused on the socio-literary culture of Renaissance Venice, an interest that recently resulted in the publication of Pietro Bembo on Etna, the ascent of a Venetian humanist. In this episode, we discussed his fascination with poetry and the theme of social reflection in Ovid, whether the Aeneid is original or simply a copy of Homer's works, the process of writing his new book, and making ancient material understandable to modern audiences. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me today. I was really looking forward to this conversation. I want to start us out with what I hope will be a relatively easy question, which is, how did you get into ancient history and classics? It's a very niche subject, so um, people don't tend to just stumble into it. Some some might, but it's... Well, when I was a child, I grew up in the UK. And um, when I was a very young child, when I began to read, they used to have history books with different print faces. Some of them were very small print, others were much larger print. And when I was about six, seven, eight, I started reading things like the Odyssey in a child's version, of course, and it had large print. And then I discovered, to my astonishment, that as you got older, you could buy books with smaller print faces. And it was almost as if moving from grade one, two, three onwards, um, you know, the, the better the book, the smaller the print face. And I was interested by that because it opened up to me ancient histories that were written precisely on this principle. Um, and then I should thank the British school system, because when I was a child, you had to do an exam called the 11 plus, And I did the 11 plus and I got into a grammar school and I was at the end of a, a tradition whereby first year students going into grammar school learned Latin. The entire class had mandatory Latin classes and I found it fascinating. I liked the mathematical interest and the logicality of the language and I got moving on Latin and went from there really. And um, I, I tried to learn Greek through very kind teachers um, uh, when I was about 14, 15. And I just found a certain up to a point a knack for doing it. And I was certainly inflamed by doing it. And I just got ignited by the fact that I was first forced to learn Latin, and then it became a great love. I feel like, I feel like that's not super uncommon these days to find someone who said, "Oh yes, I was forced into one of the languages, and then I decided I sort of liked it, and then decided just to continue a little bit longer, and then, and then people end up loving it and st and sticking with it, which I think is kind of awesome. Um, and and so then do. Were you set by the time you were you wanted to go to university? Did you know like this is absolutely I just want to continue and keep doing this, or did you uh, did you ever encounter some doubts and say, well, maybe I should 
do something else? Maybe that might be a little more profitable or... Yeah, well, I had other interests and yes, I did certainly think that, um, but I went to college and um, I still found great interest because once you actually have a grasp of the language, then you can begin to think about what writers are actually saying in those languages. And uh, I found that a whole world was opened when I meekly encountered experts who really knew what they were talking about because um, they wouldn't um, just give background about these authors, they would dig into them, they would open eyes about what was really going on. And that was the secondary level of interest when um, I discovered the depths. I didn't know the depths, but I discovered that there were depths there to be explored. Um, and that was a whole new revelation when I was a student. Um, and that really had a further ignition effect because I could understand that there was an awful lot more that I just had no knowledge of and I wanted to find it out. Nice. And how did you go about picking what you wanted to specialize in? I mean, there are so many different categories these days. So did you always have an affinity for poetry or did you think you might want to study something else? Um, no straightforward affinity for poetry only. I was very interested in prose writers, but I was interested in writers who thought about their own identities, alienation, philosophical alienation, um, looking for relief um, through philosophy, reflecting on the nature of solitude, reflecting on the nature of obligation to one's fellow humans in society, reflecting carefully about social attitudes, the nature of slavery, for example, um, the nature of uh, the genders um, in relation to each other, um, and social reflection. And a writer, therefore, I came to very early on, um, after my undergrad phase, was Ovid. And um, I spent a lot of time with um, the poetry he wrote in exile after he was exiled by the Emperor Augustus in 8 CE. Um, there he was um, in Constanza, modern Constanza, which was called Thomas in his day on the um, coast of the Black Sea in what is now Romania. And he reflected very ruefully and very carefully on his own isolation, far from the Roman urban centre. He seemingly died in exile in 17 CE, and his exilic writings were to me very extraordinary, especially in a late 20th century context of a century of displacement, so many people are refugees, so many people displaced in so many ways, not just physically, but psychologically as well. And the whole idea of feeling displaced in life had great appeal at a certain time. And hence, I did my doctoral work on Ovid's exile poetry. That's wonderful. I unfortunately didn't get to do a lot of Ovid. We did, I suppose this is pretty standard for undergraduates, but we we did the Metamorphosis. I, I remember having certain conversations with people who didn't like Roman, ancient Roman poetry at all, but they did like the Metamorphosis. So I'm... I'm wondering, as someone who's who's looked at Ovid's work, is there anything that's actually inherently like super different or super special that sets Metamorphosis above other works, or is it just the subject? Like, like why is it? I wonder that people who don't like poetry or don't like Ovid for the most part usually point to that specific work. Well, I think it's got great appeal at many different levels because many of the stories, um, this is a poem about the nature of change itself, and many of the stories are very charming, disturbing, difficult, arresting, exciting, repugnant, 
it has all sorts of difference. And in a sense, you could call the metamorphoses a collection of days in the life, um, because so many different personalities come on stage, come off stage. It's very dramatically arresting and full of verve at um, the most superficial level of reading. And the storylines themselves are very arresting and um, it just has great momentum to it in that respect. But to me, and of course, it has a very large heritage where many of the stories have been taken up by other writers. And um, in modern artistic experience, many um, visual representations, of course, have been drawn from the metamorphoses as well. So in a way, part of the modern interest in the metamorphoses is precisely a consequence of the diaspora of the metamorphoses culturally. It's had a vast heritage, and that heritage has itself promoted a certain interest um, in the original work itself. It is extraordinarily influential um, in many different cultures and many different art forms. But to me, one of the great interests of the metamorphoses is the fact that it's not a static poem on a given theme. It is about the nature of change, human change, human development, um, and processes that happen to every human being are encased in this poem, which really has a finger on the pulse of life. Um, many other poetic forms in um, Greece and Rome are very attractive for all sorts of reasons and extraordinarily complex in their human insight. But as a single work that has an incredible bandwidth and openness to human experience, I, for one, think that the metamorphoses is fairly hard to match. Mm. That makes me want to go back and read it because I only had the opportunity to read through it once and that was quite a while ago. Um, yeah, I wish I had more time with it because I don't think that I was able to really get any perspective or, or have any... Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm not able to say much about it just because we didn't do it more than that once. So um, I definitely would like to go back. Um, but something else that I, I think I read somewhere, I, I don't even remember, but I think I read somewhere that you were all, you're also interested in um, ancient philosophy. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And uh, um, I, I would actually call Ovid very much a philosopher. And uh, I think that uh, to see him as not a philosopher and other writers as philosophers, that in itself is rather misleading. And uh, um, in recent years, I've been very interested to promote the idea that Ovid is extremely philosophically adept. Um, and uh, I've spent a fair bit of time with other writers like Seneca, the Stoic writer, a prose writer for the most part, although he did write tragedies as well. But Seneca, for one, was steeped in Ovidian poetics and even though they are very different writers in so many ways, you can also see many cross currents that flow between them in very interesting ways as well. Um, but yes, it is true that I got lots of interests in ancient philosophy and Roman philosophy and um, in later ages as well. And so I'm very curious how you were able to use this interest in Roman philosophy in the context of Renaissance Venice, because that's something I also saw somewhere. And I love talking about Renaissance Venice. I'm not super knowledgeable because that's not my time period. That's not my era. I just watch all the miniseries that shows me how cool it is. So I would love to just hear a little bit about your work in mixing the two, because I think that's not something that would stick out as something I've heard a lot of people study. 
Well, I was interested in um, Renaissance Venice anyway, and how Latin culture and Latin writing was received. Um, Venice is endlessly fascinating, of course, um, and it's particularly interesting for me at the end of the um, 15th century because um, uh, Greek culture after the fall of Constantinople in 1453 was flowing towards Venice, um, which had many interests in the Eastern Mediterranean, and Greek language and culture began to flow via Venice um, um, into other parts of the Italian peninsula as well. And I became very interested in Pietro Bembo, one of the great literary savants of the age, and a wonderful Latinist. And um, I became involved in thinking about his early Latin writings and how he was learning Greek along the way as well, and how he um, thought very creatively about the nature of um, Latin culture in a fast-moving environment where, of course, the printing press had come to Italy and all sorts of developments were happening among the humanists in Italy in terms of promoting a widespread Latinate culture in print. Um, and so that was of great interest to me a few years ago. And then um, um, most recently I've drifted into um, spending a lot of time with a person called Ermaleo Barbaro, a very extraordinary young scholar in Venice who um, at a very young age wrote an incredibly learned work on celibacy um, in contradistinction to a work written by his grandfather on marriage. Mm. Oh my goodness. I I think that's super fascinating because... The only thing previously that I really paid attention to that carried over from the ancient Romans to Venice was probably just because it's the most obvious was the the architectural influences. But um, I mean, it it totally makes sense. But also, I, I've only really looked at um, the ancient Romans in conjunction with um, Florence. I don't, I don't know why, but it's probably just because they're the more well-known ones because of the de medicis or something but um yeah there's something so fascinating about venice at that time i was um just in italy not too long ago and and so it was kind of my time to walk around and say oh look at the roman influence here and look how it affected this and um yeah, it would be so fascinating to be able to to look more into what else yeah. is there. It's very hard, actually, to talk about Venice without talking about other places like Milan and um, Florence and Rome, and the politics are very important and significant. But um, the wider interest here is um, that I think one becomes a better classicist looking at ancient texts by seeing how those texts were used, received, thought about, processed by later generations. And... Uh, you know, I do find it very stimulating in that way to look at reception um, because it does have great insight or um, added value when you then go back to things like Ovid's Metamorphoses. And the Bembos of the world, the Barbaros of the world knew Ovid and many other writers absolutely intimately. Mm, so interesting. Um, and I mean, I'm, ju I'm just curious now that we've been talking about sort of the different poetries and the influences. And I mean, Ovid is fantastic to study as well um but in terms of just personal preference now i'm curious to know do you are you particularly a fan of virgil's work because i have uh, i had a former professor who loved everything virgil wrote um but as someone who has studied more ovid um you know is is there like a huge significant difference is it just 
different and it's like comparing apples to oranges because when we talk about these ancient works I know more people know Virgil by name than do Ovid. Very fair point and of course you know I'm a humble reader and Virgil is um, of just such specialness as to be very extraordinary and um, I have spent a lot of time just learning from Virgil and spending time trying to process thoughts about Virgil but in many ways um, Ovid um, Ovid's Metamorphoses engages so carefully with um, the Aeneid in particular um, and one of the best books ever written about Virgil's corpus generally is Ovid's Metamorphoses because even though he very cheekily um, pushes back against the Virgilian heritage. There was no reader historically who was more insightfully engaged with Virgil's Aeneid than Ovid. And even though he um, very sharply comments on the Aeneid and perhaps snidely in certain respects, there's no question about the respect in which Ovid obviously held um, things like the Aeneid. The Aeneid was published, or not published, um, uh, was left incomplete at Virgil's death in 19 BCE. Ovid began work on the Metamorphoses about two decades later. It was impossible to write an epic poem at Rome or an epic length poem at Rome after the Aeneid without absolutely operating 100% in Virgil's shadow. Absolutely impossible to escape Virgil's um, umbra, his influence, um, his name. And a measure of Ovid's sheer pluck and sense of adventure and sense of self-confidence is the very fact that he was prepared to take on um, as challenging a cultural heavyweight as the Aeneid. The Aeneid takes its course from the fall of Troy down to the projected rise of the Emperor Augustus. And so it moves, say, over a thousand years, 1,200 years. Of its metamorphoses moves from the very beginning of the world all the way down to the projected future of Augustus's apotheosis. Um, Virgil's Aeneid is an epic in 12 books. Of its metamorphoses is written in 15 books. Already, just by looking at the dimensions, both the span of time within the poem and the number of books within Ovid's poem, he's already stretching the tectonics of Virgil's Aeneid. Virgil's Aeneid is in a very certain sense cut down to size by the supersizing that Ovid offers in writing a poem in 15 books that goes from the origin of the world, Aborigine Mundi, all the way down to the projected apotheosis of Augustus. Well, it's interesting because obviously, Virgil being sort of one of the first ones and has this huge legacy now that other other poets will follow. But Virgil himself f follows great Greek poets and everything. So one question I love asking people who study Roman poets or poetry is, where do you stand on, was Virgil's Aeneid like, do you see it as like super original or is it really just Homer in reverse order, same thing, copy paste? Oh, um, no, I, I see the need as absolutely original and fundamental and for all sorts of reasons that are deeply artistic in very technical terms and matters. 
Um, the Aeneid is extraordinarily learned, of course, and is an encyclopedia of um, ancient literary history, both Greek and Latin, before Virgil's day. But I also think of fundamental dimension is that it's a world apart from Homer, and it is a writing that does coincide with the rise after the first century civil wars of a new pacification under the Emperor Augustus. It's not propaganda, but it is a charter for a new vision of Rome. And in a sense, the Aeneid inevitably puts Augustus himself into perspective because what the Aeneid offers is a vision of Roman heritage in which Augustus is a component, but only a component, because the Roman historical process is always going to be bigger than any individual within that process. In that respect, Aeneas is obviously a pioneering founder of Rome in the Aeneid, but Aeneas, in a way, is again a component and is not just straightforwardly the progenitor of Rome in a, an ongoing sense that he, his importance remains. Um, Aeneas, to me, is a relatively less than interesting person. And what matters is Rome itself more than any individual within the Roman everlasting mm. structure. I kind of like that take, to not make it so much about the, the man, the hero himself. Because I, I do remember my professor saying that this was Virgil's attempt to create a the template for what will become the ideal Roman hero, but he's still Trojan. He's still not quite that idealized figure, so you have to give him some attributes for future Roman heroes to model, but at the same time, he's imperfect. So it's more of like, yeah, you have to see the, the whole instead of the piece. He just happens to be the person that we follow. Um, and, and I remember her saying, basically, we should pay attention to after he lands in Italy, all the before stuff eh, makes for a good story, um, which I thought was funny. Yeah, and I think there are many good points there. Um, and of course, um, but one point that you have just stated is the idea that there is a formation of what might be called a good Roman. Because if there is that, let's call it narrowing effect in the Aeneid towards shaping an ideology of what it is to be Roman, I think one of the starting points for what Ovid does in the Metamorphoses is push back against that focalization in Virgil towards a definition of what Romanness might be, because Ovid has a much more flexible view of human process and behavior. Let's consider the way in which um, perhaps Virgil narrows us towards a definition of what might be called Roman. I would suggest that Ovid broadens us to see a spectrum of human behavior and um, conduct um, that is much wider in certain respects. And if in that respect, Virgil offers a manifesto for definition of Romanness, Ovid, it seems to me, opens a manifesto for a much wider range of um, human thought and expression. Um, in that respect, it's interesting that so many characters in the Metamorphoses are odd, different, quirky, mismatches, temperamental, violent, unpleasant, pleasant, circuitous, all over the place, unsure of themselves, erratic, erotic. They just go in all sorts of different directions as opposed to following any given template. In that respect, I might suggest that the metamorphoses, the changefulness of the metamorphoses 
is a very deliberate pushback against the monumentalization, let's call it, of what Virgil might be engaging in. So one's basically sort of the still propaganda and the other one is a more humanistic look, basically. Well, I wouldn't want to call the Aeneid propaganda um, because it seems to me that Virgil is far too sensitive a writer to write a one-dimensional um, take on Augustan Rome in any way that would be seen to be straightforwardly propagandistic. Of course, there are many praises of the Emperor Augustus, but it seems to me that Augustus himself um, would not have necessarily wanted to greet a straightforwardly propagandistic work. Cynical intellectuals at Rome would see through such propaganda immediately. It must have been so fascinating to be an ancient poet at the time, because I wonder sometimes, I, I don't think that... I mean, now, as contemporary readers, we sort of freed and then we always try to look in to the decisions that were being made or how things were crafted. But I, I sometimes sit here and think, man, it would be so interesting because if you were an ancient writer, how much do you have to think about politics and who's emperor and, and what is the situation in which you're going to be writing and how does how will that be perceived for the contemporary audience back then versus for those in the future. So it's always really interesting to think and and compare these poets because obviously they were writing at such different times. So to to see these stark differences, but and and it's fun to see sort of the dialogue between one responding to a different work and the back and forth, but these are centuries between them, so it's um But both writers are writing under the same emperor. And that is a great interest because um Augustus ruled for many, many years, and um, both the Aeneid and the Metamorphoses are crucially conditioned by the Augustan circumstances in which they were composed. And that is a very vital thing because both poems are fundamentally political because to be a writer at Rome under Augustus was inevitably to be drawn into dialogue, interview, correlation with the imperial centre. You could not write a politically at Rome under Augustus because whatever one would write would have to be seen in a cultural context, in a political context that was overwhelming and ubiquitous. Okay, I do want to bring in another famous Roman writer, um, Cicero. Obviously, my timelines are a little everywhere, but but just because I'm now thinking back to a, a conversation I had with a professor who talked a lot about using humor to get political messages across. And this was perfected in Rome. This wasn't really seen anywhere else at the time. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, even, even when Ovid and Virgil were writing and you're trying to consider you know what does the political situation look like you, you know we've got augustus here he's the emperor he's doing this that and the other thing but at that time was 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 humor already baked into kind of the roman political scene where you could basically get things through regularly using humor or was this like still very early and we still had to see a, a greater movement of using humor sort of make its way into Roman political society. Humor is absolutely fundamentally embedded in so much Roman cultural engagement. And uh, there was a thriving comedic form at Rome under writers like Plautus and Terence. And you're quite right, Cicero's court cases, um, he is 
partly attending to a case, but he's partly attending to an audience, of course, and trying to win over an audience, and we all like humour. Um, there are humorous touches um, in the Aeneid, certainly. And um, as we go forward into the first century CE, there are many writers who use all veins of humour, some of it off-colour, some of it appropriate, some of it light, some of it heavy, some of it very dark. Um, and Ovid is masterful in using very many shades and typologies of humour. Um, it's not to deny that there are many very grotesque aspects to the metamorphoses, and there are many social concerns on which he touches that are disturbing and are widely perceived to be disturbing in a modern context, of course. Um, but at the same time, many aspects of the metamorphoses are written with a smile, and uh, there is a great warmth and generosity to certain aspects of human conduct. And there is great kindness in many episodes in the metamorphoses, even though, as I hasten to add once again, there are many much more um, disturbing aspects of the poetry. And this is the point in a way. Um, the Metamorphoses offers such a bandwidth, a, an extent of bandwidth of um, human uh, behavioural typologies. There are so many different changeful properties of humankind encased mm, in this poem. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why that just popped in my head suddenly about humor, but I suppose it's inherently connected to Roman culture. I mean, it 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 was something that happened. So, um, yeah. So I suppose on on that level, it does make sense why it popped into my head all of a sudden. Um, but okay. So so we we have been discussing these great poets and 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 their two famous works, but I am a little curious to see. Why do you think that in all the pantheon of great ancient works that we've done plays and films and TV and all these cool entertainment things, why do people not choose to do the Roman writers? Is it, I mean, it, they're, cl they're, they're clearly very interesting. They're not boring compared to the, the Greek stuff. Why do we think there's like a hesitation to do it? Is it just because people want, don't want to tackle that or it's just not widely as studied? Like, I can't imagine that for cultures and people who like to study ancient Rome just as much as ancient Greece, it's just so weird how we just have such an imbalance of I could probably go on the Internet and find 50,000 different adaptations of Homer's works, but there's like two of the Aeneid? I think um, it's a question of accessibility. And of course, um, you know, many people um, have had perhaps some experience of Latin, both for good and for less than good. Um, I think there is an expansiveness. We think of the blue Mediterranean when we think of Homer, um, and we think of expansive journeying in the Odyssey. We think of great trauma. Um, we think inevitably of, you know, the great wars when we think of the Iliad. Um, there is a point of contact with modern human life that Homer in particular does buy into. And then the Greek tragedians tap into so many aspects of modern ethical problematization of life. Perhaps in some ways the Roman writers don't have those opportunities for modern contact that Homer, the Greek tragedies, Plato have. Um, though I would suggest also that um, an important thing is communicability and we have to present the writers 
and to as large a modern audience as possible, as accessibly as possible. And there are many well-written books that do that wonderfully in the modern era of trying to open up Ovid and Virgil and many other writers to a modern audience. And my little book um, is very much intended um, to open Ovid as best it can in its own humble way to a modern readership by trying to see modern concerns in relation to themes that Ovid touches upon in the Metamorphosis. Mm. And actually with that, would you tell us about your new book that just is, is about to come out? Because it looks fantastic and I would hope that other people would um, give it a read. Well, thanks. Um, the book arose because um, at Columbia there was a core curriculum. Every incoming student at Columbia um, does a course in the first year called Literature Humanities, which is um, a week-by-week -week study of certain texts that have been very influential across time, from Greco-Roman antiquity all the way down to the 21st century, Tony Morrison. Um, and the texts that are chosen um, are texts of great cultural importance. And Three, four years ago, um, a friend of mine um, asked if I'd want to get involved in thinking about some kind of project of writing about authors on the core curriculum. And so we brainstormed and we came up with a proposal to think about um, shortish books um, on topics related to authors in the core curriculum generally, and not just, in fact, literature humanities. And so we established a series with the, the generous help of Columbia College and Columbia University Press as well. And as time gone on, we commissioned a number of volumes and the first volumes are now beginning to appear. And one of those volumes was a book on of its metamorphoses. And in a certain sense, this was a, a guinea pig experiment to see what the books would look like, what the processes would be in terms of editorial practice. Um, and we thought it appropriate that a person on the editorial board should have a go at a book um, so that we could actually have a dry run at practices as we tried to grow the series. Um, and uh, the series was inspired by a wonderful managing editor called Deborah Martinson. Um, I make a point of thanking Deborah for so much inspiration in the preface to my book because uh, Deborah unfortunately passed away before um, the first books in the series were able to become visible. Um, and so the series generally owes an enormous amount to Deborah Martinson. Um, and I really want to express that acknowledgement very clearly. I mean, it sounds wonderful. And I think for the many people who have heard of and have a passing interest in Ovid, because they first encountered him through Metamorphosis and everything, I, I it sounds like they'll be very pleased. And I will make sure to recommend this to them because I, yeah, it, it looks absolutely incredible. So as soon as I can find the free time, once I'm done um, with with all my grad school adventures and paperworks here, um, I will be sure to pick that up and, um, and, and, and read it for sure. Um, is this the type of book that you would recommend to like people who have no background at all? Is this something you would like for like experts to also pick up? Who Who's the like ideal audience for your book? This was a very interesting point in writing one of these books. Um, for whom are they meant? Are they meant for Columbia alumni? Are they meant for a wider audience? Um, and this was one of the very interesting challenges in setting pen to paper. And the idea really was to have no fixed view of what 
reader would um, ideally pick up my little book. Um, the idea, as I developed it, was to try to write in a way that would be engaging for any reader, and it does not presuppose prior knowledge of Ovid. Um, it has no footnotes. Um, it was very liberating to write in a spirit that was obviously in no way capable of going anywhere near the wit level and the smartness of Ovid, but trying to write in a slightly freer way than is more typical of most academic books. And um, I, no one can compete with Ovid's humour, but uh, to write with a certain liveliness of tone that will try to um, express the excitement of teaching in the Columbia Core curriculum and the friction that's engaged or um, is generated by um, reading through these texts with bright Columbia undergraduates who come up with ideas in all sorts of very sparky ways. Um, and I think all of us like to read things in newspapers, in books that are arresting and enjoyable and do have a point of contact with modern experience. And so, um, however successful or unsuccessful I have been, it has been a very interesting experience, at least to make the attempt at writing in a way that does try to suggest ways um, in which a text written 2,000 years ago can really inform daily life tomorrow. That's wonderful. I, 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 I think that's great because it would, it's wonderful as someone with a background in classics to be able to feel like, yes, I would feel confident enough to pick the book up and, and dig into it. But I, it sounds like, you know, I would all also feel comfortable handing it to my mother who knows nothing at all about classics or any of the ancient writers besides Homer. But even then, she only sort of heard of it long ago. So, yeah, no, this is something I definitely would feel comfortable sharing with her. And in terms of because this is on someone and about a topic that also just isn't super known to the wider public. I know classics as a field is dealing with a lot of issues of, well, how do we become more platable to people outside and how do we communicate so we're not losing funding and this, that, and the other thing. Like eventually, I'm not sure if it's possible with this book and it, it may not be, which is totally fine because we understand the struggles, but Eventually, is this the type of thing that you would like to be open access so more people can have access to it and interact with it and not only with what you've written, but then hopefully with people within the field, people studying it? Um, I want literature generally to be as widely available to as many readers as possible, because it seems to me that, um, of course, there are commercial practices tied up with literature, but literature is a means of conveying human experience to fellow humans. And the more people who can have contact with great literature um, will be able to widen their experience. And um, as a classicist, I don't want to um, be a classicist in the very narrowly defined sense that I write only for a very small um, group of scholars. Um, I would hope to convey an excitement about the ancient world and ancient literature that um, will hopefully encourage others to engage with these cultural practices, which strike me as extraordinary. I want to do something, however little and however impoverished it might be, uh, to encourage others to engage with writers I believe to be extremely rich, provocative and useful. Because above all, I think the idea that classicists just spend their time looking at a remote past that is now detached from realities um, is not 
correct in the sense that so much of what we live through in daily experience now, we find such careful thought, rumination upon, consideration about in the ancient texts. And in many ways, I regard Oliver's Metamorphoses as an extremely modern work that was in fact written only yesterday. Now, I'm I'm a bit curious because I don't really talk to people who study ancient poetry all that often just because I that wasn't my thing when I was a student so I kind of hung out with those who studied material culture and some of the other stuff so I'm curious we have a long wonderful tradition of poetry obviously stemming from the ancient world and we still have a lot of great poets through the years leading up to today so I'm kind of curious is there a more contemporary it doesn't have to be like right now it can still be a bit back in time, but a more contemporary poet that you think really does justice to or sort of has similar types of works to some of these ancient uh, poets? Um, Because sometimes I like to sit and think about, oh, well, well, I wonder who really is kind of carrying on the the flame, the legacy, Um, because we have access to a lot of these ancient works and um, throughout the years, we're always influenced by the past, so I always get a little curious. And yeah, like, did did someone really study their their ancient poetry? Does anyone sort of emulate this or bring out the the spirit of it really well? Yes, I think there are many cases, and uh, an immediate case would be Shakespeare, who uses so many models, and not just the video models, of course, but thinks so carefully about you know, the literary production of the ancient past and how it can be reused and recycled in all sorts of inventive ways and extremely novel ways. And then, you know, modern writers, you know, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, are so thoughtful in how they do engage with um, the past, and Walt Whitman as well, and many other writers, both male and female. And and I think um, what's so stirring about that is how they take from Ovid not just points or storylines that they adapt, but they take essences, they take the spark of creativity, and they see in what Ovid is doing, the challenge of taking a received tradition and subverting it, turning it around, adding to it, innovating. Um, And I think it's the intellectual restlessness of a writer like Ovid that becomes so powerful um, in terms of the later tradition. so that writers like Dante are so restless in response to that kind of stimulation. Um, And that is why Ovid is endlessly fascinating. I don't think it's possible to write a definitive book on the metamorphoses, because the metamorphoses always slides off into another indistinct area. It's a bit like trying to nail down a jelly. Wow, yeah, yeah, that would be pretty difficult. So, you know, um... There are so many great poets I can think of in great works. And it's, yeah, you know, it's it's quite interesting because there are so many events and interesting historical people that, I mean, we study when we study the classics. And sometimes I sit here and think, oh, man, wouldn't it be fun if there was... Um, if there could have been an ancient work written about this specific instance or this uh, specific person. So just, just to sort of have a little fun with it uh, as, as we're sort of getting toward the end. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, is there like, is there any historical figure in ancient Rome uh, or, or 
incident that you wish these writers could have tackled? I mean, that that clearly happened after their time, but there's so many fun things that happen in history that sometimes I'm like, oh, if only if only Homer could have written about the Peloponnesian War, if only Homer could have written about something else. So is there anything in, in Roman history that you wish they could have gotten oh, to? Oh, many points, and that's a great observation. But one of the interesting points to me, uh, when I think about Ovid, is it's remarkable that so few writers say anything about Ovid's exile as a historical fact. Um, and there are those modern scholars who believe that Ovid, in fact, was never exiled, and that the whole thing is a fiction, um, and that what he was portraying was the idea of being an outsider at Rome itself. It's a very interesting idea to play with, not one I actually subscribe to myself, um, for very particular reasons, but it, the, the very proposal that he never went into exile, but writes exilic poetry while remaining at Rome is enticing because one of the interesting commonalities between Ovid's own life experience and what goes on in the Metamorphoses is that the Metamorphoses is chock full of people who are outsiders in life, who are exiles, misfits, not quite fitting into a given social context. Um, and in that respect, I would be very interested um, to reflect upon, think about why there is so little in the historical record about Ovid's exile, if it, as I believe, if it did indeed actually happen. And I should also say that um, I don't for a moment overlook the fact that there are many aspects of the metamorphoses that are discomforting from a modern viewpoint. Um, the Metamorphoses was written in a slave society. There is a lot of sexual violence, of course, and that is um, a, a feature of the poem that continues to cause great upset and concern. I don't disguise that for a moment. Um, and in that respect, I do think that Ovid's Metamorphoses does project a vision of a culture um, without varnishing that culture. Roman culture was in many ways a very harsh, brutal culture, of course. Um, and that does come through in this poem, even though there are aspects that um, do show that Ovid himself um, really has it in for bullies in the world and for those who are violent in a very premeditated and uh, sadistic way. It would be very interesting. And I'm surprised that more authors haven't tackled Ovid's exile than, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting just because I feel like so many things back then they're remarked upon, people sp spread rumors, especially like in ancient Athens, people were ostracized all the time and people would talk about it. So it's, it is quite strange to, to learn that people just don't really talk about it or believe that it happened. So, um, yeah, I would like to see or hear more about that done. <laughs> Great yeah. mystery. No, it is an extraordinary historical vacuum, you know, that uh, there's very little mention of something so momentous and he was of course you know an oscar wilde figure very famous in his own time wonderful i have three questions i generally like to ask at the end of the interview portion of the podcast which is uh the first was and and i know in the uk it was different so like was there a type of office hours in the uk when you were going to school that was either like not maybe a formal like here you can come to my office at this time and i know the uk system has lecturers who 
uh, don't really do that, but you have the tutorials which do. But was there any sort of formal or informal time that resembled an office hour that you were able to attend when you were in school? Oh, yes. And you had easy access to um, tutors, teachers, lecturers, and uh, they were extraordinarily generous. And um, so there was something akin to an office hour process, but uh, a great camaraderie. And I'm very grateful to teachers um, across the decades who've shown great generosity of time and uh, access in that way was wonderful. Um, and yeah, and uh, so warm and generous. And out of all these experiences and the time you, you did have, um, is there like a particular memory or something fun that happened that, that sticks out to you from, from one of these conversations, meetings? Well, I think, um, you know, when I do look back, um, you know, student days were great fun and they went very quickly, of course. Um, but uh, just the camaraderie, especially among graduate students in those days, and many of my, my friends have gone on to very distinguished careers. Um, and uh, pulling together, you know, and understanding that we're all trying to serve the same general cause. And, uh, you know, I think that's a very important thing. It's it's not about us. It's about the writers and the texts um, and what can be done to serve these texts. Um, um, when I'm gone, um, I would hope that at least I tried to make a little ripple effect, um, you know, in my little writing on Ovid's Metamorphoses and try to inject something but i do want to show that in fact i read the poem very carefully and it has an effect on me whether what i write has an effect on anyone else is not up to me but um in that sense i think that writing on a poem um such as the metamorphoses it is inevitably a very personal experience and in your capacity now as a professor who has office hours if you had to give a little elevator pitch to students for why they should attend office hours. What would you tell them? Um, one point I would make is whether you're a physics student, whether you're a mathematics student, whether you study chemistry or whether you study French literature or classics. Professors, in my experience, tend to be really interested in undergraduates. Just say hello, have a chat. It seems to me that you will get very good formal instruction in college, but um, why not just try to spend 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes talking to somebody who's interested in you? And you'll just get to see the broader picture behind the pure knowledge in that person. Um, just as, you know, in most interactions on a daily basis, it's nice to get a more rounded view of a person. And I find that if I have a chance to discuss with a graduate student or an undergraduate a piece of work, you begin to see how the piece of work relates to the wider life of the person. And surely, the more we know about a person, the better informed we are about the work they do, the attitudes they have. And isn't college really fundamentally a process of understanding through dialogue? And office hours, it seems to me, give a chance for that dialogue. Couldn't have put it better myself. And some professors just have nice incentivizing treats my my favorite professor had a chocolate drawer so i would go just for the chocolate no i'm kidding i would go to see her but the chocolate was a perk very good um and so at the end of each podcast i ask every guest if they would read percy shelley's beautiful ozymandias poem and so if you could read the poem and then just give us your opinion your thoughts on 
what is this poem? What do you think it means? And it's it's routinely been cited as a as a poem of of significance, and a lot of people say that they they find great meaning in it. And so I'm curious to know if you agree and whatever else. Spring is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Yeah. Well, here goes. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand... Half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that knocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It is a great poem, and I'm obviously no expert, and I wouldn't claim to have any real insight, but it's to me very Herodotian, the humbling of a king, king of kings, and then we become sand of sands as the tide of time just moves us on. And perhaps what we should think about is that when we see the Great Pyramids, for example, we don't just see a monument to a wonderful cultural cultural age and um, sophistication. We also see a wonderful memento mori reminder that even the greatest cultures will evolve and develop in ways that might humble us a little bit. And in that respect, is Shelley not on the same page as Ovid in understanding that change is fundamental to human experience, whether we like it or not? Should we not therefore embrace change rather than try to push it to one side? If we embrace change, it seems to me that we will quickly reach for a copy of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Well, that's very astute. As someone who looks at ancient Roman poetry, I think that really helps. And it really does still influence how we look at modern poetry because I couldn't have said it better myself. Because I always say, yes, it's it to me, it speaks clearly as being a memento mori. I mean, this is a 14-line sonnet. You know, it's not long, but it's succinct. And Shelley knew what he was writing and this idea of monumentality and, and legacy. And so, yes, it's, I'm not afraid to say it, it is my favorite poem of all time. I know it's very bold to say that because there are a lot of great poems uh, floating around from history, but yeah, there's something super powerful about this one. And 
so since we have established that it it really is a memento mori, um, I want I want I want you to think for a minute, and if you consider our contemporary culture right now, do we have a sort of modern Ozymandias something that we think is awesome and amazing and like the best thing since sliced bread, but realistically will future humans a couple hundred years from now, will they still see it as such or will something have crumbled and just been like, wow, that's a, that was a terrible idea. What, what were we thinking? What were humans doing at that time? Because ugh, this is horrible. Well, um, it's not for me to say, of course, but I wonder the, Internet is a marvel of modern experience, but how will it be perceived in, say, 50 years' time as this remarkable connector that's a force only for good? Or might it be seen over time as a force for intermingling between cultures, nations, peoples, etc., that has mixed effects, perhaps? And do we yet know, or is the internet yet old enough for us to fully understand the social implications of a uh, a phenomenon that has changed all our lives in the last 25, 30 years. And do we yet understand the full implications of that remarkable human development? That's a great point, because I don't think so. I mean, someone was, I was in conversation with someone the other day, and at the tender age of 27 years, I still told someone, well, I kind of remember before Google was Google, and... 27 isn't that much time spent on Earth. I mean, I I think because I, I, maybe it was over New Year's, but I brought it up and I just said, oh, I remember what Ask Jeeves was, um, unsurprisingly, because we were talking about Jeeves here in um, the, the TV show with, with the Jeeves character. Yes, exactly. So we were talking about that at, at New Year's and I just, yeah, I just said, well, wasn't there an Ask Jeeves? And uh, an older friend of mine piped up and said, yes, in fact, that was before Google was Google. We had Ask Jeeves. And I said, wait, if I'm old enough to remember that, oh my gosh, the internet's like super young then. Um, and so that realization dawned on me and then I got all freaked out. And then I said, well, the first iPhone came out in like 2007 when I was already in eighth grade or something. So I was like, oh my goodness, I feel so old. Or it just shows how young technology truly is. And I think, I think you're onto something. I think you're right. How could we possibly understand the implications of this thing that we now rely on and that some people feel like addicted to um i don't think it's uncommon to hear people say like oh without my iphone i feel naked like i don't feel like i have anything my world is not at my fingertips i can't just google something whenever i want to my life is on that phone so yeah i would i couldn't have i couldn't have said it better so i kind of lied and i do i will actually ask you one more thing uh the last question i will actually ask you is where can people find you if they're interested in sending you an email, hoping to study with you, ask you about your book or your research? They can just email me, gdw5 at columbia.edu. Wonderful. And do you happen to have an academia page? I do. I think I do. <laughs> well, I will 
double check. And if you do have an academia page, I will link it in our show notes. So people, if, if, if you have an account, people can hopefully find your work on there. Um, well, it's very kind. The trouble is I was so busy writing the book. I didn't really have such a sharp eye on all the peripherals. <laughs> no, that's fine. Well, I was going to say, uh, do you have any planned events or openings or anything for, for the book launch? Um, or Columbia is thinking of a, a book launch and um, I'll, I'll go along to that but uh, um, you know I, I just will go with the flow that's what Ovid teaches us I think that's a brilliant strategy so what I will do then is since this episode won't be out for the next several months um, if there is a, a book launch then I will come back and I will add the info into the show notes so people can find any press or book launch if there is any uh, and they can they can find it from there and then i will also um as soon as it becomes available to purchase from anywhere i will put in a link to your book so people can go find it thank you so much for joining me it's it's been such a pleasure and and i hope to have you back on at some point i don't know in what capacity yet but i'd love to have you back on the show well thank you for having me this morning and it's great pleasure of course and uh, great to have the conversation definitely Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.